Star Wars definitely skewed me to be build Star Wars robots. I made a whole company influenced by George Lucas and his vision in Star Wars. I made those robots real to do surgery. There was a medical droid and I was in my mind. The World Beyond. Emotion is of tomorrow. Brought to you by Michelle and Mac. Hello and welcome back to my podcast, Well Beyond the Emotion Years of Tomorrow. Today I'm very excited to be joined in person here at Studio 78 at Europa Park by no one other than Ronnie Abobitz. So happy to have you here, Ronnie. Welcome. Thank you, Michael. It's exciting to be here and it's a, it's a beautiful park and happy to be on your podcast. I'd like to start my podcast with a round of four quick fire questions so mm. that the audience can get to know you a little bit more. Are you ready, Ronnie? Well, the answers are 42, elephant, yellow, and apple beer. Okay, you get me on that one. I actually did um, prepare some fast four questions for you. So let me start with them, what I have in my script. One. What's an invention you wish we would have today? Time machine. Two. What did you want to become when you were a child? An astronaut. Three. What's your favorite superhero or fictional character? Ooh. That's a very tough question. Probably a Jedi Knight from Star Wars. Four. And what is the most exciting thing you've been doing recently? Oh, that's a crazy question. Most exciting thing I'm doing recently. Doing a lot of exciting things. Um, probably flying my radio control planes again. Great, thank you. Um, now to really get this talk going, will you allow me to challenge you with a provocative statement question? Absolutely. Lovely, here it is. You've recently changed professional gears a bit and founded companies based more in a creative field with the aim of creating new art, music, films, etc. However, it can sometimes feel like all stories have been told a hundred times. Melodies seem to sound more similar to each other. We tend to see spin-offs, sequels, prequels, to movie rather than original new content. Can there really be innovation and truly new content and groundbreaking developments in the creative field? So I'm going to give you two contradictory answers. The first is there's nothing new under the sun. And the second is absolutely we could do new creative things. And I think part of what makes that new creative thing possible is if you approach it as a creator, as an artist, with a completely open heart. And if you inject yourself and your soul into it, right? So I think you could tell the difference between art, film, books, music, opera. They were being very rational and calculating and where it was just like a bolt of lightning. So I still very much believe the bolt of lightning entering and it almost just feels like the universe is flowing through you. And I think those pieces are the ones we remember. Exciting. Um, I've been looking into your history um, and you founded the company Mako Surgical Corporation, which specialized in manufacturing important surgical robotic arm assistant platforms. You've since sold it for an amazing sum and you founded the very diverse incubation hub Sun and Thunder, a company focused on developing and housing sub companies in various areas of the creative field. Can you um, tell us a little bit what are you doing at uh, Sun and Thunder? Yeah, so um, so I, I first founded Mako the Robotics, then I founded Magic Leap, which was immersive experiences and, and technology and augmented reality and spatial computing. And in 2020, in the fall of 2020, I founded Sun and Thunder, 
Uh, the, actually, the name comes from a walk I took with my wife. I was thinking, what's the name for my new crazy company? And we were walking in Florida in this bright sun. And at the same time, there was rain and thunder with the sun shining. And it felt very primal. And there was a lightning bolt. And she said, the name of your new company is Sun and Thunder. And the idea was to form a kind of creative incubator. And the, the ingredients I was putting in, which you'd appreciate, it was like one part Lucasfilm, one part Studio Ghibli. I'm a huge fan of Miyazaki. So like those are you know, ingredients I'm pouring into the blender. And then another part, like really futuristic science fiction. Uh, and I knew that I was going to leverage um, what I see as the golden age of, of AI. That when I founded the company, we were on the cusp of the next few decades just being dominated by artificial intelligence in many ways. And I, I thought that the entertainment world and, and creativity and animation and film were just going to be forever changed. And I wanted to be part of that. I mean, I'm, I met you a couple of years, and uh, I think I can't remember exactly the name. Where Temptation, Florida, I think. That, I guess Plant. that's Plantation. That yeah, was, but you yeah, know yeah, what? Right, um, right. I, many of our employees found the city name offensive okay. uh, because of uh, from the from the old South to plantations. You know, where they where they had uh, they used to have slaves. So we actually lobbied the city to rename it Magic Leap City, <laughs> but we didn't win that. But they actually named the street, the buildings on Magic Leap Way. So I told our employees that in our building, they were living in the Magic Leap City, like the Magic City. So it was really fun. And uh, I was fascinating what I saw back in the days. I still have a, a picture on my phone. Oh, which, awesome. <laughs> which I thought like, oh my gosh, at least I got older. And um, that was like very inspiring. I mean, we do have a common friend, uh, Richard, who connected us. But literally, I know a lot of how he came the guy he is um when i dig a little bit in your history i mean you are such a visionary guy who has come up with amazing technical ideas can you tell us a little bit i mean can i can tell you my theme park story when i was raised and born here at europe uh, but i guess we're talking about the world tomorrow and uh, i would love to have like such visionaries like you how did you start doing things like that i mean that's just fascinating it's funny because um As a kid, you know, in elementary school, second grade, third grade, all the teachers called me space cadet because they're probably teaching a boring class and I would just tune out because I, I was getting all good grades anyway without having to listen to them. So I would just kind of daydream about all kinds of amazing things. And I remember at the age of six seeing Star Wars. Then my just brain went into like the sort of hyperdrive about what was possible. Like I had never seen anything like that. The world had ever seen anything like that, um, that you could imagine these sort of things. The other part was I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, which you could think of as the Siberia of the United States cold, <laughs> but it had great museums. So we used to go to the art museum, the, the science museums all the time. They had giant dinosaurs in the front. So I was constantly in and out of art and science and history museums, not listening to my teachers and reading everything I could on my own. And then I just had no limitation. My father was an entrepreneur. Uh, my mom was an artist, so they weren't putting a lot of boundaries. I think all of that was very helpful. And a lot of people told me what was impossible, that I couldn't do it, and that was very motivating <laughs> to basically say, yep, if you keep saying that's not possible, I'm going to have to do that. It sounds very familiar to <laughs> what am I doing in an eight-generation company. It's like, but what drove you the most? Was it just the people telling you you can't do it? Or was there like anything you, you thought 
there has to be something invented what isn't out there i mean you did like as i understood like you've been in the field of medicine um then you changed into a an ar classes <laughs> like the um magic leap i mean there's no track or like red line you can you can find can i tell you a small story about uh creating mako so um i wanted to be aerospace design jets and spaceships and be an astronaut My father, who was a flight engineer for the Air Force, then he became um, he moved into developing homes and real estate. He said, you should become a biomedical engineer. I'm like, I don't want to be a biomedical engineer. And he said, look, it's combining medicine and technology. You can invent anything. And they need them in space, too. So that was kind of the... So I did biomedical engineering, and I worked on... I'll tell you very quickly. I worked on an amazing um, implant for the body that was super elastic, nitinol, that would like help for people with aortic valve problems. And it sort of clicked on me. This is when I was an undergrad, um, the idea of what implants and medicine would be. And then an Italian company uh, needed an engineer. So while I was in college, they, they hired me as like their, I guess their head in engineer in the United States when I was still an undergrad. And it was kind of amazing because they did all these things in orthopedic surgery. But when I went into my first surgery, I had these visions of Star Trek and Star Wars and robots. And you just scan a laser over something and the bone is healed. So my first surgery, the surgeon cuts open the patient. There's blood. There's guts. It's like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I'm getting hit in the face with gook and, 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 and the femoral head bounces off my forehead. And it was like a horror show. And I walked away going, I'm going to make this better. My first thought was, I'm going to replace all surgeons with robots. That was my first instinct. After I calmed down, I realized we can't replace surgeons with robots because they'll, they'll reject this idea. Then I hit upon the idea that what if we can combine the best of a robot and the best of a surgeon together? That turned out to be a really big win. But I knew I had to make surgery better. That was like when I found the purpose because I was in it. I saw how backwards it was it felt like it was a hundred years old and there were so many things that were primitive and i had imagined so many high-tech things were happening in the or when they finally took me to the back room and i saw what was going on i was just unbelievably blown away by how antiquated it was and how it felt like nothing had changed for decades uh, so i wanted to make that better and um that was like my first real mission i was just like non-stop i'm gonna do that And Mako, like everyone said it was crazy, but it worked. And uh, there's thousands of systems all over the world. One of the things I'm probably most happy about, um, and it wasn't the money we made. We, we did well, we had a good exit, but it's the fact that there's over a million people, and I meet people all the time, that tell me they have a, a Mako robot changed something in their body permanently and they have a better life. That clicked in my head more than any financial gain the idea that you can actually help people directly in a, an amazing way so that was like a big motivation how old have you been when you did that early 20s i started early 20s. yeah amazing. i had no idea what i was doing i didn't even know you had to make a corporation mm -hmm. i had no funding i think my parents wrote a five thousand dollar check my in-laws wrote like a you know everyone wrote a little bit and i was kind of like living in my now wife's um, apartment on the campus, $300 a month. And we we're eating like 19 cent, 29 cent Taco Bell bean and cheese burritos. <laughs> very, Amazing. very lo-fi, very ramen venture. So, you know, I became, you know, grew up not wealthy. Yeah. Um, so, but willing to fight for it. And how many people have you been in the end? Uh, Mako was under a thousand, I think maybe five, six hundred um, when Stryker bought us. Hmm. And you've so, been doing that for how many years and how, how long did you develop? So 
basically we founded Mako in 2000, late 2003, and it came out of a, a graduate school project that I was incubating on the mm -hmm. campus. And then we went public in 2008. If you remember, that was the crash. Yep. Yep. And Stryker, a U.S. company, bought us in 2013 for $1.65 Amazing. That, just, was like, that was like my, you know, if you think about like tr movie trilogies, yeah. Mako was like my Luke blowing up to Death Star. That mm -hmm. was like unbelievably crazy. It was like out of body. I couldn't believe it was happening. It was such a, an intensely amazing moment. Amazing. Well, I just like we have in, in the area of Strasbourg, I don't know if you heard of it, EarCut. It's in the French Association, um, learning people um, on robotic and um, tele like working. They have the Da Vinci. I'm not into this. The Da Vinci kind robot. Of, yeah, the robots. They so, invested uh, in Mako. So my okay. friend, Dr. Fred Mole, and another guy, John Freund, were some of the founders of Intuitive Surgical, which made the Da Vinci robot. Mm -hmm. And they both became investors and board members of Mako. We were like the little brother. So they dominated prostate surgery and soft tissue. Mm -hmm. And we built a totally different robot, like a cousin nephew robot to the Da Vinci for orthopedic surgery. And both have been the two most successful robots in, in surgery in the world to date, I think. Yeah, well, it's, it's fascinating. It was the last week, the first time I saw robots like that. And Mr. Moresco, who is from the area, um, he's a huge professor, like very well known around the world. I'm helping people to be trained on those robots. So I'm the other side of the technology, which I've heard of. So then you're in your 30s, got a heck lot of money. And you think like now I'm going to the Maldives and enjoying my life. But you did the opposite. You kept on driving and you kept on inventing. So th there was a moment after we got acquired of like, oh, my God. And then my wife made sure we took most of it and put it away <laughs> so that we, we just that our daughter would be set and we could always help family and that we just had something. Right. She's like, you worked really hard and you're not going to bet all of that again on something else. So she gave me a little bit to play with on the next company. But most of it put away in the bank. Safe, yeah. yeah. Put it, make it safe, which was smart. Um, so that, you know, future kids are, are, are in good shape. And I think I took one day off and just flew right into building the next thing, which was really two things. That's how I met Richard. Uh, so I started to develop an idea for a movie in a story world called Our Blue. And at the same time, I was thinking about building a technology company to enable the future of computing. Um, I didn't have a great name for it at the time. And then it, I think, evolved into the word spatial computing, which I liked the best mm -hmm. to kind of describe what we were doing. And we took a very different approach. There was, at the same time, the rise of virtual reality, which is where you close off. And that was uh, uh, Facebook and Oculus. And we were probably the big pioneers, at least as an independent company, of bringing real augmented reality, unique augmented reality into the world. And then we found out without knowing about it, that we were also competing with Microsoft. So a little tiny startup, and Microsoft also had a big effort to build augmented reality. So that was like kind of scary when you find out like you're in a race against big giant Facebook, big giant Microsoft, and at some point every major company in the world was going to jump in, but I didn't know that at the time, but it was kind of a fun race. But uh, for me just to understand, because I'm a little bit lost there, I mean, you've been you've been working on medical robots, <laughs> you've been talking about like saving people's life, and then you come up with a concept of a story of, of our blue, and you think about an AI um, 
glasses. I mean, if, if I'm looking at my history, I mean, we come from roller coaster building, and it's a, it's a bit of obvious to do a theme park. But I mean, how did you come from? There's a big detour. medical into and in, in, into like telling stories which change the world and putting up a technology which haven't been there. I'll try to connect the thread. So at Mako, my my investors discouraged my original use of robotics, which is to put it in the brain and to do neurosurgery and and matrix-like neurosurgery to cure Parkinson's and tumors and all sorts of stuff. And I said, you know what, go to the bone. We could see the plane coming into the landing. We understand what you're trying to do, but in the bone, we could see it happening. In the brain, that's a long flight. So, And they were right. Like We were able to make it really happen. But I was always fascinated with the brain. And thinking about that, I was always in surgery with the surgeon. I used to go a lot of surgeries. And the Mako robot, just for people who are listening, you would see on a big screen a three-dimensional animation of where you were inside the body. So you can do things minimally invasively using like this three-dimensional fly-by-wire system. We would create volumetric images. It was really, really cool. And then we had haptics, which is this very high-resolution digital touch. So as you moved your instrument, you'd feel like glass is like invisible glass just appeared and pushed you in the right way and wouldn't let you go in the wrong way. So the, the robot became this like use of the force, like from Star Wars, it just kind of guided you to do the procedure right, to the point where you can close your eyes, you could be a 10-year-old kid, you would still have the same outcome. Uh, and we had an AI inside it that was a blend of the techniques of some of the best surgeons in the world, uh, a brilliant Italian surgeon who was like a Michelangelo sculpture and another... Uh, brilliant Italian surgeon in Buffalo, New York, and the two of them together, I fused their thinking into an AI behind the Mako robot. But in doing that, I was frustrated that you could feel where you needed to be, but you couldn't see it. You had to look away. So as we were doing Mako, the back of my mind, I'm thinking, how can we take the three-dimensional models off the monitor and have them just appear in space like we saw in all these movies. Particularly, like, remember the Star Wars chess with the little monsters? Mm -hmm. where I'm like, why can't we do that? And I was like, it's the year 2009, 2010. Why is this so hard? So I had a friend from Caltech who was a theoretical physicist, and we started arguing about it. And he was talking about the optics, and I was talking about the brain. And it was like this joke about it's optics, it's the brain. And we're like, what if you put the two together? Is there some new clever way to solve what turned out to be an incredibly difficult problem? Because what I stumbled into is that spatial computing, augmented reality, virtual reality is a brain-computer interface. It's not actually a computer-computer. It's much more of a medical device, a med tech, to get it right. Because the brain and the eye are so sensitive. There's so many things you need to tune together. So that's where the biomedical background kind of led me. To that, but also the other part of my brain, the creative part, is flying around thinking about movies and stuff, and those two parts were connecting on this idea. And I thought somebody like Richard, who I didn't know, but I reached out to him, I said, I build robots, I'm a friend to robots, I got back an answer, Weta's also a friend of robots, this is Richard Taylor from Weta, and we became friends from that point forward, and he helped me on this quest, and he's still been helping me on the same quest. How did you come to the idea? I mean, we all now know Richard for many years and we um, know him as a lovely person. But I mean, he's like literally one of the top shots out there. So you just took the phone and said like, oh, that's him. I want to call. Or was that what made that happen that the two of you met? It, it's such a great question, Michael, because especially here in a park, right? Because I was imagining who could understand where I thought movies were going to go. I thought they needed to move from the screen, not 3D movies, but into like full worlds. 
And I was thinking, who are the kind of people who understand full world building, like that you are immersed in its theme parks, right? Like Europa Park, Walt Disney, Disney World, that in a physical way, they were trying to build the whole world moving from movies. And I was really inspired by like, you know, reading the whole history of like Disney and they made 2D films and then they tried to make the films come to life. And like, what's the next thing beyond that? How do we bring digital immersive things to life on that? You know, if you read books like Snow Crash, it's coming. So I thought there was no way Disney was going to talk to me and Lucasfilm was going to talk to me. I'm like, you know, I, nobody. And I, for some reason, thought New Zealanders were going to be nicer. <laughs> <laughs> and they turned out to be really nice. And I, I was actually very surprised that I heard back. It was just like, yep, I'm, going to, I'm just going to throw the ball in the air, knowing that it's going to fall down on the ground. So I threw the ball in the air, and it didn't fall back down. And then a stork came with a note and said, yeah, we'd love to talk to you. And it, that was like the beginning of a series of just like unexplainable, really cool events that uh, led to, I, I would say this, it felt like, being in a movie where it's black and white and all of a sudden the storm comes and then it's technicolor and next thing you know you're on the, the road to Oz and Richard was one of those characters who's like yep I'm here in this colorful world and let's go do these crazy things together and it was just unbelievable that's amazing so when was that back in which year 2009, I, I, I checked it because I knew we were, we were going to talk. I, 2009 is when I first reached out to Richard and I got an answer back from him and his team a couple days later. And then they told me to come down to New Zealand. I told my family I'm flying to New Zealand, like halfway around the world. Are you crazy? I'm on a quest. That was the beginning of the quest. And I'll tell you, before I went there, right, I did this at Mako too. I went to Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, where the Wright brothers did their first flights, yes. which is amazing. And then I went to Cape Canaveral to see the Saturn V rocket, because that was kind of inspiration, how yeah. fast they went from Wright Brothers to Cape Canaveral, and how we went from the moon in 1962 to 1969. Like, it was just an amazing thing. I'm like, if they could do that, whatever crazy thing I want to do is possible, because that was harder. And I did that before Mako, and I also did that kind of pilgrimage before Magic Leap. So I kind of did that, and then I flew to New Zealand with that, like that, that in my head coming fresh off of like going to NASA, going to see Kitty Hawk. Now I'm on this big quest going to New Zealand. That's an interesting story. So 2009 seems to be a good year. That's when I met my wife. So oh wow, seems to be congratulations! That's great year. year. Um, and you know the economy was horrible in 2008, and 2009 was the beginning of a really good decade plus time where everything was going up again right it just crashed mm. in 2008 and then 2009 late 2009 through 2020 everything seemed to be yep. good and then it yep. crashed again so but. the rebirth of new ideas and new relations yeah. that's interesting so you started and actually like um asking richard to help you have you been like a lord of the rings uh, supporter or fan at that time or what did you just like do a little screening and say like okay lucas won't take me disney won't take me so i'm trying the new zealand one so there's some films that have had just like unbelievable impact on my life and i'll, I'll tell you i'll tell the story quickly star wars definitely skewed me to be build star wars robots i made a whole company influenced by george lucas and his vision in star wars i made those robots real to do surgery there was a medical droid and that was in my mind and then there was the matrix and movies like 2001 clockwork orange which i love kubrick spielberg movies but then when i saw lord of the rings it was just like i thought it was completely next level i had never seen the level of detail 
and thought and world building and realism and just care it was just at some other level and and it seemed like it came from a different planet like wellington new zealand who is weta it was just like it came out of nowhere in my mind and i just thought this is the coolest thing ever these are the coolest most creative people on the planet they seem to be aliens living in another world and it just felt like some nirvana of, mm-hmm. of creative geniuses and my friends and i were completely enthralled we just saw the movies over and over again driving my wife crazy let's go see it again (laughs) then had to get the box sets and the extended editions and i remember we were running around trying to go all over south florida where where we lived looking for the box that had the collectibles from weta Mm -mm -mm. and i drove my wife crazy we're going from store to store to find the one that had Gollum, and this one has a gandalf or something like we have to get it Mm -hmm. because the quality was so different from anything you'd ever seen like where is this place who are these people people it really felt like some kind of little town of hobbits on the other side of the world mm-hmm. um i think that's when in my mind i was like i'm going to go find a way to see that one day and, and meet these magical people yeah they're truly magical people and um that's i think what connect us together i mean i think richard is one of the very few if not the only one um outside america winning oscars and uh we're quite happy as, as a family been won or voted eight times the best theme park in the world so um this connects richard and myself and maybe the technology of my rights to a technical brain of my um connecting you to you but um let's talk a little bit about the magic leap i mean i'm not quite sure if everybody of our listeners do understand what magic leap was at that time i mean i saw it i'm a, I'm a tech geek and i was fascinated by the technology but could you explain a little bit for those who don't know magic leap uh, what you actually invented back i think in 2013 it was like ish yeah so i started working on actually i looked at my notebooks i started working on the ideas for magic leap in high school i think after seeing the matrix crazy ideas and then kept revisiting them and then in 2010 I have a recording studio in my house. I'm really familiar with all the stuff we have here, like a whole 32-channel recording studio and a band, and my wife's a drummer. So we went to play South by Southwest, a music festival. And after playing that, I made a decision that I was going to make Magic Leap happen. I was just going to go build this crazy thing. So we're driving back from, from Austin, which is where it's South by Southwest. We played some shows. We weren't the, the biggest or best band, at it, but it was still cool. And I was like, you know, I, after Mako, maybe we're going to travel around the country as a band or something. And my daughter was a little, very young and, and she was like, no, that's not happening. She didn't really enjoy going to that. So I'm like, okay, something where I could actually build an office and a, and a, and a, and a company in one place, but still virtually tour one day. I had to invent some ways that you could have musicians move around and, and visit worlds. And I thought Magic Leap was going to be enabling that. So the core idea of Magic Leap was... The known idea at the time of virtual reality, uh, Jaron Lanier had thought about that in the 80s and in the 70s and 60s and 50s. It kept coming back with the idea of like sticking a television in front of your face. You know, first VR systems were big televisions off of big booms and then they got smaller, but it was still the same idea that you stick a monitor in front of your eyes. And in this debate I had with my friend from Caltech, it was the idea that could we matrix-like talk to the visual cortex of the brain. That was the crazy inception point, that could there not be a normal display? And we're like, is it even possible? And I recruited a professor from the University of Washington, a guy named Brian Schoengert, who um, was of that mindset. He had published some papers and the idea that 
at his lab at the University of Washington, they were doing projection of different kinds of signals, like sometimes laser light, other things, onto the retina to stimulate it and not a normal monitor. It would just sort of stimulate and all of a sudden like images would appear. Very different from sticking a TV display in front of your eye. And I thought, can we take that early thought process, which is doing two-dimensional things, and could we create completely digital volumetric solid objects? And that idea, I was thinking of cinematic reality. Can we make the things we see in movies, how the physical and digital are so blended, could they come to life? Um, and that was the pursuit of Magic Leap. And I'll, I'll tell you one quick thing, Michael. We built our first machine was about the size of this room. It was gigantic, full of... It looked like something out of the movie Brainstorm. If, if, you're, if you're listening, um, Douglas Trumbull, who was a brilliant visual effects genius, he did all the visual effects on 2001. He made this movie called Brainstorm, and you see these crazy contraptions. Our contraption looked like something right out of Brainstorm. Uh, and weirdly, Doug Trumbull did visit us. He passed away a couple years, but he visited us, and he said, you guys have watched that movie too many times. That was the thing <laughs> Richard first put his head into. It looked like a giant thing between Brainstorm and Clockwork Orange. But what it did was it delivered uh, a real digital light field signal, stimulated the retina, and just it was like magically solid, beautiful imagery would appear. It was just incredible. And we, we brought all these people to our tiny little lab to see this giant machine shoved into it. And that's where everything got exciting because I think no one had ever seen anything like that, possibly in the history of people. So almost everyone who came by, like, you're the fifth person to ever see this. You're the sixth person to ever see this. It was so exciting. And then it was like, how do we build a company and how do we shrink it down to the pair of glasses? Because this thing now weighs like 800 pounds. <laughs> so that, that was the real challenge, not just making it once, but how do you make a product out of something and how do you shrink it down? So, like, to understand for our listeners, have you been, so to say, the first Apple Vision Pro? Ooh, those are fighting words. Um, <laughs> if anyone's very technical and geeky, if you're listening to this, you might be. Um, Magic Leap was clear optics. You see the world through your own eyes, like I'm wearing glasses, right? You see through clear optics. What Apple is doing and a couple other companies, Meta, which used to be Facebook, you have a display and they put cameras on the outside. So you're looking through a display with video cameras which is an entirely different thing. You're, you're really seeing like virtual reality with the outside world blending in through a camera. With us, it was see the real world always and blending in a signal and having those two things combined in your brain. So it was a very different philosophy uh, from what Apple is doing and what Meta is doing. Microsoft was probably the closest in chasing the same way up the mountain, right? I think of it as like, we're all racing up a mountain to go to the top and Companies like Meta and Apple picked one path, and basically Microsoft and Magic Leap were going a different one. I think ours had more Yetis and crevices and avalanches waiting for us because we picked, I think, the much harder path. Thank you so much, Roni, for coming over to visit us here at Europa Park. That was just a little glimpse of our talk. And if you want to know more about Ronnie and his amazing life in technology and about the world tomorrow, listen to my podcast, The World Beyond the Emotion Years of Tomorrow. Second part with Roni next week. Michelle Mark presents The World Beyond. Emotion is of tomorrow. A Mac One production.